A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Over the last few weeks, our New Testament lesson has been the letter to the Hebrews, as the title of the church has given this text. And I think that title suggests that this was likely written to communities of Jewish Christians who had been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they'd been baptized into the church and begun to live as Christians. But in the face of hardship and persecution, these people are now being drawn back to Judaism, back to the Old Covenant, to a way of life that for them would frankly have been a lot easier to live, much more in line with their surrounding culture. And the writer of this letter, if we had been following verse by verse all the way along, has been building a case from the very first verse until now, showing how the New Covenant in Jesus is light years ahead of the Old Covenant, that the Old Covenant could be compared to a shadow when it's held up next to the New Covenant. The very beginning of this letter, the author leaps out of the gates by saying that in times past, God spoke to our forefathers in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us literally in Son, the Son, the one through whom the entire universe was created and in whom it finds its rightful end. Last week, we listened as the writer of this letter pleaded with his readers to run the race, to look to the cloud of witnesses, indeed to the example of Christ himself, and to not go back to the old way of living, encumbered by sin and hindrances of every kind, but to press on, to strengthen weak arms and knocking knees so that they might enter into the holiness of Christ, without which no one will see God. And if you thought last week was kind of explicit, this week tops it, because this is the rhetorical peak of the entire letter. And in it, the author has played all of his cards. This is where 
He sets the whole stage on fire to burn down everything in hopes of getting your attention. This is a difficult passage, but not because it's hard to interpret. It's difficult partly because it's so stark. And frankly, our gospel reading doesn't help matters much with all of the narrow door talk. So, before we jump in any further, I want to say something loud and clear. What I want for each of you every time you leave this place is to know deep down in your guts the love of Jesus. I want you to go home saying, Jesus is more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. He has given me entrance into his kingdom by grace, nothing but sheer mercy. I have been entered into this race by grace. I continue to run this race by grace, and I will be brought to completion in this race by grace, by the work that Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. I want you to wake up every morning knowing that it is not about your effort to tip the scale away from failure and towards success by being a better friend or a better spouse or a better parent or a better church member or a better sibling or a better employee or a better Portlander. It is about Jesus who has given you already gratis through grace for free a gift, new life, and everything you need to live that new life. It has already been given you. And it's actually for this very reason that the writer of Hebrews is dumping on so much lighter fluid in this passage that we'll have ringing in our ears, don't go back. Don't go back to your old way of life. Don't go back to self-justification. Now, for the initial readers, the temptation was to go back to Mount Sinai, meaning to the law of Moses. Sinai was the place that Israel was brought to after she fled Egypt, and it's there that the law was handed down. It's there that Israel fell into sin and idolatry, and it's there that Israel began to let bitterness take root. And she no longer understood the gift that had been given her, and instead lived in cycles of rebellion and fear over and over and over again. When the writer quotes Moses as saying, I tremble with fear, Moses is trembling because he thinks God is going to destroy all of the people because of their willful rebellion against him. This example of Esau is so striking because it's an example of a man who rejected a gift. Inheritance was nothing that he had earned. It was simply his because he was the firstborn, a choice he couldn't possibly have made for himself. You can call it chance, you can call it providence, you can call it whatever you want, but you can't say that Esau earned this gift. It's not works. The gift wasn't just a double portion of the inheritance, it was most certainly that. It was the gift of taking part in the salvation plan of God, of being in the line of those stars that God showed Abraham, Esau's grandfather. It was the gift of working with God that Esau rejected for a bowl of porridge. So the call of this passage is twofold. That those who have been brought into Christ see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And that you see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And by extension, that no one allows a root of bitterness to spring up 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And the crux of this passage rests on the image of two mountains, which represent these two covenants. And each mountain has seven descriptions. Mount Sinai, the old covenant, is described as a mountain that can be touched. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, trumpet, and a voice that made the hearers beg that no further words be spoken to them. It was a terrifying sight. But that is not the mountain to which you have been brought. No, you have come to the living God's city, Mount Zion, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, a place with innumerable angels throwing a festival. You have been brought to the assembly, the church of the firstborn, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood sprinkled that speaks a better word. This is almost imagery overload, though I promise you each word and image is carefully chosen. Zion was the site of the temple. It's the place where the cloud of God's glory came and dwelt. And by the way, it's the place where it went up and left from as the people were being sent into exile. Jerusalem is the city of peace. It signifies the reign of God as it should be in all the earth. It's a place where all people stream in to worship him in peace, peace with God and peace with one another. Angels in festal gathering. This is Daniel 7, when Daniel has the vision of the ancient of days in robes white as snow, seated on a throne of fire, with a stream of fire flowing forth from him, and surrounding him are a thousand thousands serving him. 10,000 upon 10,000, which is ancient Hebrew for a bajillion, like seriously innumerable amounts of angels. It's the same thing that Isaiah sees in the vision, his vision of God with the train of God's robe taking up the whole temple and the seraphim, these strange six-winged creatures ceaselessly calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You've been brought to a mountain where these angels are gathered in festal shout. You've been brought to God, the judge of all, but you're not afraid. It's a festival. It's a judgment of joy. You've been brought to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's all the saints that have gone on before, from Abel to Abram to St. Stephen, the first martyr, to St. Paul, St. John, right on down to the present day. This great cloud of witnesses. You have been brought to Jesus, the mediator. You have got God, the Son, mediating on your behalf. God made man so that you might enter into the divine life. You've been brought to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. When the people of Israel were dedicated to the Lord, they were sprinkled with the blood of rams and goats. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the goat in his hands. And then he would come out as if he was the Lord himself with this blood, and he would sprinkle it on the temple as a way of symbolizing the cleansing of creation that God is doing, that God will one, one day do finally and completely in Jesus Christ. That is the better blood that speaks a better word. It's been sprinkled on you in baptism. You have been plunged into the blood of the perfect lamb, the only sinless man to have ever walked the earth, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. And do you know what the most incredible part of this entire passage is? 
and perhaps the most unbelievable part, it's that you have already come. You have already come to this mountain, to this festival city. I mean, how can that be true? We, of course, know that our arrival there is not complete yet, don't we? We're still on our pilgrimage. We still long to fully arrive. We long for the vindication of God. We long for the day when children are not sold into slavery. We long for the day when young men are not shot dead in the street because of their skin color. We long for the day when our families aren't torn apart by violence and anger and divorce. We long for the day when the poor will receive justice and the hungry will be filled with good things, when the mighty will be cast down from their thrones and the lowly will be lifted up. Indeed, it is our longing that causes us to rise up in prayer that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done in this small corner of earth as it is in heaven. Our longing and our prayer cause us to go back out into the world and work for justice to bring relief to the suffering. Though maybe some of us are thinking, yeah, I know I should long for that stuff, but if I'm honest, I don't know if I really do. How can I long more for that full arrival? And I think that answer to that question is the same as the answer to the question of what does it mean that we have already come to Mount Zion? And the answer is here. When we first began All Souls four years ago, I would say this all the time, and I've, I've fallen out of the habit, but it, it, it's good to be reminded. What we do here is not primarily about education or entertainment. If you learn things while you're here, that's wonderful. We're glad. If we keep your attention, we're very glad. But what we do here is not primarily about education or entertainment. What we do here is not primarily about serving others, though of course we help, hope that you'll help out in the nursery, you'll help with setup, you'll acolyte, you'll go out and serve rest, meals at the rescue mission and fight for justice in the world. And some of us that are still new to the tradition, we're thinking, yeah, what, but what are we doing here? If it's none of those things, what does everything that we're doing here mean? And the answer, unfortunately, is infuriating because it doesn't mean anything. It is something. This is a participation in reality. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that we have been brought to this place, to the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. The reason that most liturgies in churches of the various ancient traditions, right? So Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, the reason that they all sort of feel the same or at least similar is because they're all trying to get at the same truth, that in gathering together in worship, the curtain on reality is being pulled back for us. As Father Schmemann put it, the liturgy of the Eucharist is best understood as the journey of the church into the dimension of the kingdom. Our entrance into the presence of Christ in the Eucharistic liturgy is an entrance into a fourth dimension, which allows us to see the ultimate reality of life. He says it's not an escape from the world. Rather, it is the arrival at a vantage point from which we can see more deeply into the reality of the world. From the moment of the processional, we are led into the presence of God's throne room by the crucified and risen Christ. 
to the moment of the Sursum Corda where we say, lift up your hearts and you are being caught up into heaven, into the realm of those festal angels and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that cloud of saints that has gone on before us. And that's why we say in praise to God every week, therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn. We are being caught up. Is God with you when you're out enjoying nature? Yes, of course he is. Can you truly worship him through your nine-to-five work? Absolutely. Is offering a hot meal or a cold drink to someone in need an act of devotion? We are commanded to do these things as unto Christ himself. So we cannot say that the rest of life is somehow divorced from the gathered Eucharistic worship or is somehow not important. On the contrary it, is, contrary, it is by gathering here week by week, by entering into the city of the living God and being surrounded by festal angels in the cloud of the church that has gone on before us. It is by participating in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, in the cup and the bread, that the rest of life gets sorted out, gets put in its rightful place, gets imbued with meaning that it otherwise wouldn't have. Which means, of course, that to neglect this assembly, the gathered festal worship of the church, would be to risk ignoring the voice of him who is speaking. And it would allow bitterness to take root, and it could cause us to, like Esau, look with flippancy upon our inheritance, which is this gathered worship, this entrance into God's kingdom. And it would convince us that we should sell it, to just give it away. For what? All of the pleasures in the world combined amount to a bowl of beans compared to being brought into the life of God himself. How many hours a week do you spend at work? How many hours a week do you spend watching Netflix? How many hours a week do you spend on the internet scrolling Instagram? Listen, I'm not asking you to do a mental audit to sort of up the guilty feelings in the room so that I can point my finger. But I do want you to notice how anxious and pulled apart most of us are in our daily life. Because we, we're, not, we're not used to life without distractions. We're just constantly moving from one thing to the next never sitting still, never being quiet. None of those things I just mentioned are bad, but they're not going to save you. And they're not going to give you the one thing that you crave the most, which is love. True love. And gathering here is just one more way that we can remind ourselves and be reminded by God's Spirit that when we are quiet, when we are still, when we stop trying to defend ourselves and justify ourselves, we can actually hear God calling. 
We can hear him speaking to us, saying, I want to know you. I want to experience friendship with you. I want to show you the universe as I see it. I want to knit you back together and bring you into an unshakable kingdom that reverberates constantly with the sounds of joy. C.S. Lewis famously said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, whether it's obvious to us or not, whether we believe it or not, the reality is, is that in the gathered liturgy, we have been brought to the very city of God, to his throne room. And he is the same God whose voice shot fear into the hearts of the Israelites, and yet we have a mediator in Christ, and so we can enter into this place without fear, but rather with joy, knowing that this is the place that we will be brought back together, where the world is being remade, where the blood is being sprinkled to cleanse the earth, so that God will finally be all in all. Let us never neglect this gathering, this assembly. Friends, I encourage you this week, if you feel pulled in too many different directions, get quiet. Grab the Psalms and get quiet. And if you see people in the pews next to you, or if you see people that you, or if you don't see people that you used to see in the pews next to you, call them, text them. Ask them how they're doing. We are charged with one another to make sure that we do not allow the root of bitterness to spring up, but rather that we come back every week in gratitude to give thanks, to make Eucharist together, because what else is there to do? Everything has been given to us. There's no work to be done. It's just a big party. Friends, I encourage you this week Get quiet for yourself and get noisy for the people around you who are maybe falling away. Bring them back. Remind them of the goodness of Christ and how he has given us everything. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.